0: Greetings comrades. In this episode I want to talk about more of a philosophical concept, you see. Well, I'm recording this the day after my birthday, and uh, even though I was partying a bit, I, well, as always, listen to all the news that I can get, and all the opposition stuff in Russia, and as much as Soviet stuff that I can get my hands on. That's my job, after all. And recently there is a YouTube channel that's grown into popularity because with all the protests and everything, all sorts of Putin's opposition are coming out of ground, and some of them are more interesting than others. I mean, you would expect that people like Navalny and others who would be called liberals, at least in the classical liberalism sense, and that is also how they're um, seen in Russia, this liberal opposition, Uh, They are the most common type that you'd expect from the Putin's opposition. However, there are also some people who make Ramzan Kadyrov and Putin himself feel like they're some sort of very humane, very left-leaning people because there is is also the ultra-far-right opposition of the Putin's regime. And at the same time, those guys are ready to ally with the communists, which is bizarre, but again, as with the phenomenon of uh, national Bolsheviks, you shouldn't be surprised that, yes, the so-called nationalistic forces are all, by the way, for trade protectionism and who also want to expand the Soviet Union back. Well, they want to recreate the Soviet Union, basically, and expand it back to its um, real borders, which means, you know, annexing the Baltics again and all that nasty stuff. Yeah, these people have also started to talk about how the Putin's regime would collapse because of the current events and how the government is unable to deal with massive crises which are like hitting Russia very hard, talking about the Siberian forest fires and the flooding that is also coming after these forest fires because, you know, they're less forests there now, and also the whole debacle with the nuclear incident that recently happened with the explosion of their rocket, but uh, we don't have enough information yet available, there are only just speculations about what exactly happened and what caused the radiation leak and what type of radiation it was, so can't really make an episode about that right now. The one thing that was interesting is that they firmly believe that Putin is being led by the so-called Western Liberals and that he's incompetent and just, you know, being led by his surrounding elites. Now even though here we have used the term collective Putin now and then, To describe the elite governments in Russia it has to be said that they put a lot of emphasis on this they are unlike for example more kind of again a bit to the right of Putin but still conservative opposition to the what's happening in Russia Tsargrad TV these guys are basically blaming everyone except Putin on their shows which I also watch they also are super conservative not in the kind of a good normal European conservative way they are very massively hyper pro-Russia conservative, and again, they blame um, American interference and the fact that Americans are basically running this Russian country, which is an interesting argument in itself. But in general, what this means is that, yes, there is a massive local crisis in Russia, but the thing that this forced me to think about is the reasons of why did the Soviet Union collapse? And can we draw some parallels here, and what can we, what can we learn from it? because it is a complex issue that doesn't have any simple answer, even though people might think about how Stalinism had, like, gone its route, and how the whole doomed economical planned economy system also had gone its route as well. But those are just parts of the whole wide picture, and right now it's more important than ever to take a look at this question and kind of go through it. On January the 1st, 1991, The Soviet Union was the largest country in the world, covering about one-sixth of Earth's surface, land surface, that is. Its population numbered more than 290 million, and, you know, it had about 100 distinct nationalities living there. And my home country also boasted an arsenal of, like, tens of thousands of nukes, and the sphere of influence was just massive through Warsaw Pact and other programs that it established, and it was, like, huge. However, within a year, it truly, truly stopped existing. Because on December ninety one, Soviet president, first and only one, by the way, Mikhail Gorbachev, announced the dissolution. Using the words, we're now living in a new world, Gorbachev, well, effectively agreed to end the Cold War. But we'll get to that. It was a bit of a strange moment, because at 7.32pm that evening, The Soviet flag above the Kremlin was replaced with the flag of the Russian Federation, led by its own first president, Boris Yeltsin. At the same moment, what had been the world's largest communist state broke into 15 independent republics. And the reasons are just, would you say, varied, and see if you can spot some differences into stuff that happened there, and have some similarities with the modern world. First, of course, is the political factor. When Mikhail Gorbachev was named General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union on March 11th, 1985, his primary goals, well, at home, domestic ones, were to jumpstart the totally awful, stagnating Soviet economy that had just gone downhill, starting with Khrushchev, who, by the way, started to export only raw resources out because, in Stalin's era, it was forbidden to export out raw resources, basically Soviet Union did not sell oil to other countries, it only sold for example gasoline or the end products as not to become a kind of a resource colony. However this changed and the, kind of this whole bureaucracy had been terrible, it had become awful and no one wanted to do anything really and to streamline this bureaucracy Gorbachev wanted to do some reforms, and when his initial attempts at reform failed to yield any real results, especially, you know, involving the Chernobyl, but we'll get to that, he instituted the policies of glasnost and perestroika. Like, glasnost is like clearness, openness, it's like a transparency. And perestroika is literally restructuring, I, I've spoken about this before. Just to remind you that the former was intended to foster kind of this dialogue, this openness, building a a socialism with a human face, as he put it, while the latter one introduced a kind of a sort of free-market policies to government-run industries. The thing is that all this made cooperatives legal, and some, well, crazy people with more criminal ties used it after that, but, well, we have gotten to the 90s previously on this show, so I won't repeat myself here. However, rather than, you know, sparking some sort of resurrection, as he hoped, and the whole communist thought, Glasnost, well, really opened the floodgates of massive criticism of the entire Soviet apparatus. The state lost control at that time of uh, both the media and the public sphere, and the democratic reform movements gained steam through the Soviet bloc. Perestroika exhibited the worst of the capitalist and communist systems altogether. It was a pretty terrible time, especially when 90s hit and we went into this whole capitalist version of life. Price controls were of course lifted in some markets, but existing bureaucratic structures were left in place, meaning that the communist officials who didn't like this whole idea and wanted to push back against Gorbachev were able themselves fight against these policies that did not benefit them personally because corruption was the central element of the whole Soviet system in the end Gorbachev's reforms and his abandonment of the Brezhnev doctrine kind of hastened the demise of the Soviet Empire. By the end of 1989 Hungary had dismantled its border fence with Austria. Solidarity the, this whole workers' union with Lech Wales on top of it had swept into power in Poland, and, well, my own Baltic states, well, we were working hard towards independence. We had to have this uh, Baltic way in the memorial of Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and we were pushing through this kind of idea that, hey, we had been independent before, how about now? And, yes, at the end of 1989, the Berlin Wall had gone down. The Iron Curtain, well, basically, had ceased existing. And... Uh, other things could follow. One thing, though, about the end of the Cold War is an interesting fact that, um, well, in the United States, President George H.W. Bush declared victory in the Cold War. But, there's an interesting thing. Serhii Plochny, a history professor at Harvard University and the author of The Last Empire, The Final Days of the Soviet Union, says that this declaration was misleading. Quote, The United States was trying to do everything in its power to stop the dissolution of the Soviet Union, says Plochy. It's as simple as that. The real end of the Cold War came about, which he says, at the Malta summit in 1989, where Gorbachev and Bush met and agreed to a peace that was built on, basically, United States conditions. After that, he says, the United States government actively sought to keep the Soviet Union together, seeing it as a favorable alternative to a nuclear power dissolving into more than a dozen nation states. Bush even traveled to Ukraine in August 1991 to deliver what was later referred to as the so-called <clears throat> Chicken Kiev speech. In it, he urged Ukrainians to vote no on a vote to secede from the Union, calling it, quote, suicidal nationalism, and cautioning Ukrainians that, quote, freedom is not the same as independence, end quote. The United States only switched positions on this dissolution of the USSR, in late November, when polling on Ukraine showed the inevitability of this independence vote passing, which basically put the entire Soviet state at the brink of collapse. But yeah, even though these 15 nations formed, the United States, even though claiming their victory, did not encourage those nations that, well, we live in now, to get actual independence. And I it's understandable, because that is one of the scenarios that everyone is afraid now as well especially here because what if russia follows the same route with some democratic reforms for example if navalny takes power and starts opening up the floodgate well then we might have a similar scenario where a bunch of lands on the other side of ural mountains where all the resources are but which are mostly ignored like in the case of siberian forest fires what if they declare independence what if kaliningrad decides to go elsewhere as well what if things happen and we get Chechnya and Caucasus in case of like any liberal reforms? That any liberal president will, because Ramzan Kadyrov will want to stay in power, and he's way younger than Putin, so he will definitely will want to stay in power because he's an even more power-hungry guy. Uh, unless he makes a bid for Russian presidency himself in case of any liberal reforms and democracy in Russia, the Caucasus republics in Abkhazia, Chechnya, Dagestan. Uh, Buryat, places like this, Bashkiria, uh, they will just declare their own independence and they, well, at least in the case of Chechnya, have an army to back it up. And I'm sure our Chechnyan friends will be more than glad to quietly annex and help their brotherly republics to join a kind of a new southern Caucasus federation or something of that sort. And they will have nuclear arms, right? That's even if Ramzan Khedirov does not make a bid for the president, you see. And this puts us in an interesting position, because, yeah, if Russia passes some democratic reforms, and if they institute some sort of a new glasnost or perestroika, then I do believe that it is inevitable that they will lose some territories in the Caucasus, because Putin going away doesn't mean the local governors, who are often friendlier to more radical and dictatorial means, especially in these southern Caucasus territories and um, in the Siberian regions where there are even less political freedoms than in Moscow, it is highly unlikely that they will just accept the new regime and with the massive funding of the military that is happening right now in Russia, it is also highly unlikely that a mass support from the armed forces will be present there to kind of keep everything in check. The center will kind of obviously lose the control of the periphery, Unless, unless, again, these national forces in modern-day Russia decide to strike back and take control again, which is what they're trying to prevent. This is one of the main arguments why I'm tying this collapse of the Soviet Union together with modern-day Russia, because this very scenario is considered to be the most likely one from the kind of this right-wing opposition towards Putin, and they will want to do everything in their power to prevent it, which is why they so desperately want to be this second wave of revolution, because even they now feel that the first wave, controlled by more liberal forces, is quite inevitable. And yeah, it does kind of look like French Revolution at this time, in a bit, playing out in slow mode. But let's go back to the economical reasons for the collapse of the Soviet Union, and... uh I'll just mention that, well, in modern-day, ruble has been, like, slowly plummeting, too. I'm just trying to figure out, well, what is the most plausible scenario for the future of Russia, because I want the people living there to actually have the best possible future, and not some weird North Korea or armed warfare scenario happening to them. By quite a few measures, the Soviet economy was the world's second largest in 1990. It was under heavy sanctions, obviously, But it basically produced everything on its own. It tried to be as independent as possible, and it was much stronger than Russia's economy today. However, obviously, as you've heard on this show, shortages of consumer goods were very routine, and hoarding of literally everything and trying to steal from your workplace, well, whatever they produced, literally all the things, was commonplace. It was estimated that the Soviet black market economy was about more than 10% of the country's official GDP score, which is very kind of toned down in lower numbers, I would say. Stagnation had basically crippled the USSR for years and perestroika reforms only served to kind of make the problem worse. Wage hikes were supported by printing money, fueling an inflationary spiral. Management of fiscal policy made the country completely vulnerable to all the external factors and a sharp drop in the price of oil sent the Soviet economy into a tailspin. This is also the thing that's kind of happening now in Russia, because during the Putin's early years, which they call his good years, which a lot of people, even his opponents, call his first term in office, yeah, that was paired with uh, obscenely high oil prices, which have now dropped. And ruble is now 66.9 rubles per dollar, I think, which is the lowest it has been since a long time. So... The oil prices and this spiral of like needing to export its oil, that's going to do a great bad thing to the whole economy. Throughout the 70s and 80s, the Soviet Union ranked as one of the world's top producers of all the energy resources, obviously. It has the largest reserves in the planet Earth on oil and natural gas, and I'm not even talking about all the diamonds and uranium and gold and the whole resources that the USSR could pull upon, and modern Russia can as well, are immeasurable, but they're being abused and not used in the correct way. Exports of these commodities basically played a vital role in kind of shorting up this command economy, kind of patching it up because as long as the oil prices were high, the Soviets could manage. When oil plunged from $120 a barrel in nineteen eighty to just twenty-four dollars per barrel in March nineteen eighty-six. Yeah, this vital lifeline, this thing that Khrushchev had used, Stalin had prohibited, he only allowed, like I said, the exports of final products. Yeah, this dried up. The price of oil temporarily spiked in the wake of Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and the Gulf crisis in August 1990. But by that point, oh yeah, by that point, even if it just would reach those crazy prices up, it could not be saved, because high prices meant that uh, the more just could be stolen. Then also, what they spent their money on. What the Soviets spent their money on is, um... A lot of people believe, and among historians and my sources, that the Soviet defense spending accelerated dramatically in response to the presidency of Ronald Reagan and proposals such as the SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, or the so-called Star Wars. However, uh, really speaking, the Soviet military budget had been trending upwards since at least the early 70s, but, uh... Yeah, obviously everyone in the West were left with best guesses in regard to hard numbers because the Soviet economy did not operate in the same way traditional capitalist economies do where everything is predictable and you can figure something out. This is the same with kind of, again, parallels the modern Russian economy where about 10% of its budget is concerned to be the secret budget where literally no one knows how they're being spent. Outside estimates of Soviet military spending range between 10 and 20% of GDP. And even with the Soviet Union itself, it was difficult to produce an exact accounting because the military budget, again, involved a variety of government ministries, each with its own competing interests, because if you remember the KGB who had a military subarm, fought with the army which fought with the border guards and it was all a huge mess. The total point is that the military spending was constantly ignoring any economic trends because of all these inter-party interests and resistance to Gorbachev and all that. Even when the Soviet economy lagged, the military remained well-funded and that just caused more issues because even though people had nothing to eat in the stores, especially in the late 80s, the military remained well-funded and they still had their crazy experiments going on, often disastrous because this was all done by underpaid workforce who were there mostly involuntary. And if you look at, for example, this recent nuclear incident with the missiles, you can see similar trends there. In addition obviously the military took complete priority when it came to research and development you know all the intelligent talent and everything technological innovators and would be kind of entrepreneurs who could have helped support Gorbachev's partial transition to market economy but all instead funneled it to defense industries Hey guys, Annette here. I hope you are enjoying our new episode of the Eastern Border. As always, a big thank you to all of our Patreons. The show would not be possible without your help. If you are not a Patreon and would like to become one, head over to the Eastern Border page on patreon.com. Please remember to also follow us on our social media, like Twitter, where we are known as Eastern underscore Border, and on our Facebook page. We also have a Discord server, so if you're interested in that, find the link in the description of this podcast. That's it for now. See you online. This podcast brought to you by RussianVoiceOvers.eu. Enjoy. And this has been a long-running thread, because, you know, I went to a rocketry museum. It was a long time ago, I think 2009, and they had an exhibition about the space race in London, and, you know, they had, like, a whole section devoted to the Soviet space program. I'm not sure if I mentioned that in one of my early episodes when I did the Soviet space race, but the most telling thing about how the Soviet space program worked was not the mighty Korolev's achievements with rockets and everything, it was the fact that among the artifacts displayed in this exhibition, this museum, one of the most important ones, one of the ones that left the biggest impression uh, of me was his prison cup. Just a simple, simple aluminium cup, very standard in prisons, with the name Korolev stamped on it, which he used all his time, because technically it was the fact that the Soviet Union just took its best scientists, stopped them into forced labor and made them, well, do a lot of nasty things sometimes. Of course, there were a lot of fanatics, and there were people who really liked working for the people, because, you know, as it is with scientists, they tend to be quite well into loving their thing and loving their fields of expertise, and they are mostly passionate about, you know, pushing their pixel of knowledge. But, yeah, everyone was not allowed to do it in the most, most efficient way. And when we talk about the military force, then, of course, we must come to the Afghanistan issue. The thing is that, if you haven't listened to my Afghanistan episodes, do so, because that was one of the the hardest ones to make. But all this Soviet involvement in Afghanistan from 1709 to 1809 was a key military factor in in the whole this breakup thing. Soviet army, which had gotten better due to Stalin reforms and because of what it did in World War II, where it truly grew into a massive tool, like a power in itself and was super well armed and taken care of even in a bad economical situation and you know it was also a vital tool of uh, the repression of the hungarian revolution in Prague spring yeah at that point like everyone they stepped into um, they stepped into afghanistan and if you're an empire don't step into the region known collectively as the graveyard of empires don't step into afghanistan kids it might lead into trouble as many as a million Soviet troops participated in the 10-year occupation, approximately 15,000 people were killed there and thousands more were wounded. And uh, even though there, I recently again listened to an interview with uh, an Afghanistan veteran uh, who's there from like a podcast in Russian about the whole situation. And he was a lieutenant there and a sergeant came to him and said, you know, after they've had some days off and And the lieutenant gets asked, well, you know, by by this young sergeant who's more enthusiastic than him. And he says, well, how are we going to win Afghanistan when we'll finally beat those Churkas up? And, you know, Churkas being a kind of a slightly racist term for all these Afghani people there. And the lieutenant responds that uh, we can't. It'll never happen. To win in Afghanistan, we would have to kill every last Afghanistani person ever. We would have to kill the land, like make it bereft of people and kill everyone. Which is not ever gonna happen, we are stuck here and we will never get out, and this is a pin kind of a sinkhole, but we must do what we are told, unless, you know, bad things will happen, just, you know, drink some vodka and pray that you get out alive. Even the people fighting there had no hope, and that's often been called, even by the veterans of the whole campaign, the, the most useless war the Soviet you never fought. And if you look at this, it was a bloody affair, more than a million Afghans, mostly civilians at that, were killed. And at least four million were externally displaced by the fighting. It was basically weird. They, uh, they, they were stumped in all this ground because the Soviet Army wasn't used to such ferocity, because it is Afghanistan, of course, with the, and, and when they're fighting Mujahideen armed with uh, yeah, American surface-to-air missiles, because, you know, CIA involvement with training these guys was also well noted. And yeah, as long as the government controlled the press, this scent about the war in Afghanistan remained very muted. People knew about the Cargo 200, but none really spoke about it. again, Glasnost opened the door to the vocalization of widespread war weariness. The army, which was the single most powerful opponent in Khrushchev's reform efforts, found itself backfooted by the stalemate in Afghanistan and it lost whatever leverage it might have had in checking the advance of Aristroika. In all of our Soviet republics, everywhere, the Afghansi, the veterans, everyone, Everyone agitated against and spoke against what they perceived to be the war from Moscow. That's the most common theme, whether you were from the Caucasus or or Riga or anywhere else, from Siberia. It's a war that was forced upon us by Moscow, and everyone hated Moscow for it. Even if you were from Russia itself, from Foronezh, Saratov, Yekaterinburg, Peter, all the places, that was purely Kremlin's war, and everyone said that, you know, why the hell are we there? This is stupid. This is the dumbest thing on the planet Earth, and we are forced to kill these guys, and they are forced to kill us, and we can't do anything about it. Let this fucking madness end. And many soldiers from the Central Asian republics, yeah, you know, think about this. They felt closer ethnic and religious ties to Afghans than they did to the Russians. Well, obviously. And my end of the planet in the European republics, we hated Moscow already. Anti-war demonstrations were out there in Ukraine, Well, basically, everyone here in the Baltics viewed the war in Afghanistan through basically the fact that, hey, right now, we are fighting a war where, you know, what they did to us in 1940 and then in 1944, we are now forced to do that to some country on the other side of the planet. We are now forced to be the evil guys. We don't want that. So, it was just terrible. And and this Afghanistan war was a major source of fueling the whole successionist movements that preceded. And uh, interestingly enough, which is a point that current Russian right-wing guys say, is that even though KGB at that time, which was also going through their own things, because even the KGB guys were people after all, they notably state that even though the KGB could have done even more and worse atrocities than they already did, they totally stomped down on any more nationalistic movements within Russia itself with and in other republics. But they somehow let us go. Somehow, yes, the period of 1991 was tragic here, but they did let us go, because they felt that they couldn't hold us. This is why in 1990 all of us Baltic states declared independence, and then Ukraine followed after their referendum year after, and then the Soviet Union was done. But all this war, and all this issue, and all of this, if you think about it, really played a massive role now, if you haven't noticed that Mr. Putin has embroiled himself in more wars than he can handle, you might just know about Donbass, which is an interesting factor, because recently, basically now, uh, some memoirs came out where a Russian general is just basically stating that, oh yeah, we were in Donbass with my squad, and we killed a bunch of Ukrainians, and we're super proud of that, and it's a whole mess, because, you know, it's next best thing uh, to an open admission of of all this war thing going on, because I'll get to that, because I want to get that book. But Putin is not only fighting there, he's also fighting in Syria. And don't forget the military presence in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. There's also Nagorno-Karabakh. There's also trans which also has a major Russian contingent. Russia is involved in a bunch of pointless wars, and right now there are same veterans from this Wagner private warfare company, which I've spoken about in previous episodes, who are also coming out and saying, hey, we're dying and it's just like Afghanistan where we can't end dying, We can't do anything and we're not paid pensions and we're getting mauled and we're getting killed you know we're not even getting any recognition and you know all of our dead are just pushed back somewhere and families of the dead and the wounded can't even speak about their losses and and then people die in some random new weapons experiments you know the the magical nuclear-powered super radioactive rocket that needs to hit Florida yeah all that stuff this is one of the reasons why currently if you are in the military if you had any ties to the military then if other oppositionaries, such as Alexander Nevzorov, which is a well-known journalist, and Enechom Eskvi, the so-called intellectual opposition, is allowed to exist, same with Navarny, who gets arrested, then with the massive massive, the massive the political influence of the military in modern-day Russia, if you are a part of the military and speak against the regime, then you will be jailed for years. Uh, that happened to Aslan Ahmedov, which is known as the mad Spetsnaz guy, who was uh, the Spetsnaz and he was from Dagestan no less and he started his own YouTube channel and uh, after a couple of months of, you know, speaking against Putin and saying that we, should, we must have reforms and called up to everyone in the army to think with their own heads, he is now serving prison sentence of four years for extremism, so to speak, and his YouTube channel has been closed down and people are gathering donations for him. This disappointment within the army, this lack of support from the military, was one of the key issues in the collapse of the Soviet Union, and it might, might serve as a kind of a hindrance there. This is why the Russian government spends so much of its GDP and all the budget to fund these so-called siloviki, which is the police, the National Guard, and the military. But It's all just weirder and weirder because, again, these ultra-right-wing nationalistic forces are counting on the same military people if you know, things happen and it gets out of control, to fight against that very Ramzan Kadyrov, who will definitely, unless he makes a bid for running this whole big state, split off if any liberal reforms happen in Russia. And then, come down to the social factor, of course, you know, the classical one. On January 31st, 1990, McDonald's opened its first restaurant in Moscow. The image of the Golden Arcs in Pushkin Square seemed like a triumph of Western capitalism, and customers lined up around the block for their first taste of a Big Mac, Again, I had an episode about how that happened in Riga, but such a display was not uncommon in the final years of the USSR. Muscovites queued just as long for morning editions of liberal newspapers. night had started in and ushered in a flurry of new concepts, ideas, experiences, and, and we wanted to explore them. We wanted to read everything that involved, you know, essays about democratization from, like, political philosophers who were loud, or, or just trying, you know, getting that taste of the Freedom Burger thing, like, that fast food thing, again, episode 6, Olympic Burger, it is, it is what we needed. In 1984, Eduard Chevernadze, who uh, later became a person in Georgia, one of their active political leaders, had told Gorbachev, everything is rotten, has to be changed. And that feeling was a very common one. The Soviets, we, were disgusted with the widespread corruption and everything that happened in the Soviet state. And a lot of people point to this nationalistic thoughts in the Baltics, but when you think about it, like, out of all the people who voted to leave the USSR, a lot of them had economic reasons, a lot of them were, like, Russians, too, like, ethnic Russians living here, who also were just as disillusioned as we. Sure, the nationalistic aspect, kind of this independence thing, was here in the Baltics, but it was later well overplayed by people who would rather, you know create some chaos and make sure that we do not integrate with each other for some nefarious means of just getting the votes. Gorbachev's goal with glasnost and perestroika was really nothing less than a transformation of all this Soviet spirit. The new Soviet man was dead. Glory to the new Soviet man. He wanted to make some sort of new deal between the Soviets and the people there. And, and his chief advisor, Alexander Yakovlev kind of described this whole thing that they had to do saying that, quote, The main issue today is not only economy, this is only the material side of the process. The heart of the matter is in the political system and its relation to man. In the end, there was, like, this tension between the empowered citizenry and the Soviet state, which had gone on still with completely ruined credibility. It was just crazy, because at one point, you know, everyone wanted more freedoms, but the search wouldn't give them. And when the hardliner is, like, the really crazy very fanatical communist people did their august coup in 1981 and when they were completely opposed well then yeah that also didn't bode well to that and then we come to the last point which i call the nuclear factor and you know we were all nicely tied into this uh, mutually assured destruction madness and everything and then chernobyl happened chernobyl happened and i've spoken about it so many times and recently I even analyzed the series and yeah, Gorbachev had been, like, in power for just over a year, by the way, when, when this happened. Well, by now you all know what happened <laughs> in detail. And it was crazy. Because, yes, this was a nice test. This official response was a test of Gorbachev's doctrine of openness, Glasnost, troika. And, uh, obviously, it was found inadequate. Because the Communist Party officials suppressed information quickly about the, how everything happened. And again, like I mentioned in the last episode, they ordered May Day parades and celebrations and Kiev and, and Minsk and, you know, everything proceeded as planned despite the oldest risk of radiation exposure. They basically started talking only when the West starts talking about how things are really bad. And one thing that I didn't mention in the last episode, but I got a bunch of mails from people inside Russia and Belarus, by the way. And uh, this is a bit of a sidetrack, but yeah, apparently it went so far as the political party people in various surrounding areas were instructed to take Geiger counters out of science classes from schools and universities and you know, slowly, slowly tug them away so that, you know, people wouldn't know that stuff is going on. Oh, and secondly is the fact that even though I read like four to five sources to my analysis of Chernobyl, there are still sources that state that nope, 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 this helicopter did fall down. Yeah, that scene in the helicopter apparently did fall down, but it wasn't because of radiation, it was because that its rotors got entangled in some wires and people fell down somewhat close to the nuclear reactor, but not on it. But the crew still died from radiation, not from the crash. It's a very complex issue, basically the whole helicopter thing remains a bit of a mystery, because like I said, I have a couple of sources saying that it didn't happen and that the, the crew died from radiation, in the meantime, there are also sources that stated no it actually did fall down. So not everything is clear to this day. I'll, I promise to update you when I have a hundred percent reliability on this matter because God en mails about that. And if you think about this this whole idea that everything can be hidden from people, yeah, you know, if nothing happened, then uh, you know, out of the five uh, reporting stations, because every nation who runs nuclear power plants in general, they have radiation monitoring stations everywhere. and uh, out of Russia's five, or have been closed down, you know, have stopped reporting their measurements and their readings to the wider public and the rest of the world, to which, when questioned, the Minister of Energetics in Russia responded that, oh, well, actually, given now these de- this data, it is just, you know, it's a voluntary thing, and, you know, it's a p- plan- planned maintenance. Yes, just planned maintenance. Well, you know, they're buying up all this stuff. Yeah, it's just silliness. There are a lot of parallels here. I'm just very, very worried about what's going to happen, because... Again, you know, you get a bunch of lies and propaganda, and, and then when you live just next door to it, it's a bit it's a bit scary. And again, one thing that needs to be remembered, because again, uh Chernobyl series portrayed Gorbachev as a nice little guy who tried his best, but in fact, what they didn't mention is that Gorbachev didn't issue any official statement until May 14, 18 days after the disaster, in which he characterized the incident at in Chernobyl as a misfortune, and yelled at Western media coverage as a highly immoral campaign of malicious lies, obviously. And and all this trust, all this glasnost, all this perestroika, even if it had been working for a bit, there it collapsed, standing in this highly immoral campaign of malicious lies. Because in 2007, again, Gorbachev marked the anniversary, 2006, sorry, by stating that even more than my launch of perestroika, Chernobyl was perhaps the real cause of the collapse. And it's a bizarre thing, because when I look at Russia these days, and when I look at what's happening in the world, you know, it's, it's kind of like other more philosophical podcasters and better educated men than me, you know, you know have, have some education myself, but don't claim to be an authority there. There are these sayings that history does not repeat itself, but it sometimes rhymes. The saddest part is, I wish I was wrong, and I've been yelled at it being wrong for multiple times, but, Yeah seeing some rhymes here. But make your own conclusions, I just presented my view on this collapse thing. And let me just end this with a warning, the fact that even though Putin and Russia might seem scary now, if the far-right guys from there take power, or Ramzan Kadyrov does it, oh boy, then times will become super interesting. Not in a good way. Anyhow, until next time, comrades. And use your own heads and make your own conclusions. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv. And we'll rummage even to the Western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The Dark Myths Void.